0: if you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk welcome to the latest episode of the just not sports podcast this is the show where I talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like that's just not sports. I am your host, Brad Burke. I am a sports marketer in Chicago. Thank you for everybody tuning in. Great response to last week's episode with Baron Davis on his Black Santa initiative. Super cool. Really fun to see heading into the holiday week. Hope everyone's having a good, a good end of year. End of year is always Kind of crappy for me in my industry. We're like deep into 2019 planning, and then the Super Bowl stuff's coming up. People are freaking out, changing plans. So it's always, it's never as 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 tranquil as I want it. But hey, no complaints. Uh We're, we're moving forward. All right. So speaking of moving forward, let's talk about our guest for today's show. That would be Jane McManus. You know her from her time across many different media outlets, notably places like ESPN. Uh, she's a columnist for the New York Daily News. She's also recently taken a job as the director for Marist's Center for Sports Communication. Trying to say that uh, correctly, I was, uh, I was more of a print journalism class guy than a broadcast journalism class guy, as you can readily and frequently tell from my butchering of all uh, phraseology on this year podcast. But I you know, Jane is super cool. She's super respected within sports media circles. I got to meet her a couple years ago at the ESPNW Summit. Uh, back then she was hosting a show with with Sarah Spain and Kate Fagan called The Trifecta. And I had a chance to just sort of hang around Jane, talk to her a little bit, um, get to know her, hear her stories. She's I think has a great sensibility when it comes to sports. It's a great viewpoint, um, really smart. And I just wanted to pick her brain about what is she into beyond sports. And whoa, as soon as I sent her a note, she comes back with like four, you know, three or four different areas we can go in, and they are just all over the board. (laughs) This is someone who is a is a renaissance woman because she was saying, "Hey, what if we break down old school hip hop? I would love to talk to you about uh, Public Enemy. I'd love to talk to you about um, you know '90s rap, you know NWA." Seeing those those acts in person, I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And then she's like, what about archaeology? I'm like, what? We got old school hip hop and then older, older, older school archaeology. But how do you say no to that too? And she, you know, she's been doing a lot of travel. She was living in England this past year with her family, and and talked to me about bouncing around to historic sites there. So, you know, I just had a lot of fun. I love doing these uh, these interviews when when people have a, a wide array of interests and we can kind of like veer back and forth within them. You know, a little bit sad that I am your, your guide to a discussion with her about old school hip-hop. You know, I don't do the show with Gareth and Adam anymore. Those guys are far more credible, uh, you know, breaking down the, the nuances of um, uh, NWA versus Public Enemy versus Tribe. I do my best to hold my own, whether I was enough to actually entertain someone like Jane who's got real opinions and uh, insights on all of uh, of that art and culture. I'm not sure, but, you know, hey... Doing my best. <laughs> it's hard. Week to week, man. I just gotta roll I gotta roll with everything. I was I was a grunge kid growing up. You know, I had I had appreciation for hip hop, but I was not the person like like nerding out to Jay Dilla. Um but that's why we have Jane on. So yeah, had a super fun time talking to Jane. She is someone that I could just spend hours talking to about a wide variety of topics. And we went long. We had a really in-depth conversation. So no distraction from me this week. I'll just let this be your show. Just a quick note. She was in England when we taped this. Uh, the, the first, I would say, few minutes, um, it's just a little bit quieter than later on in the interview where we, we changed a few settings. We, we, we did as best we could, uh, given uh, that we were talking uh, trans... Transatlantic, I guess you would say. So sit back, enjoy Jane. Uh, super fun, interesting personality. Congrats on her new gig. Welcome back to the States. Enjoy the show. I don't want to, you know, poke at a scab here, but how's that whole Brexit thing going today? <laughs> <clears throat>
1: Not well. uh, My understanding, not well. It's, you know, it's like lemmings holding hands and jumping off a cliff. Nobody wants to be the first one off the cliff. So there's a lot of discussion about that and unhappiness with the way that we're going to jump off the cliff. That seems to be the general feeling about it from where I am
0: before we get into the other things we're going to talk about today, I was curious just to ask you about your, uh, your, your journey to the UK. What's been the greatest part about doing that this year?
1: Well, there are a ton. I mean, the, first of all, the travel has been Mm. incredible. We're so close to the rest of Europe. We're close to a lot of other places. Um, And because people here travel so much, it's super easy. It's, so much more efficient um, generally than it is in the States just from even the point of like TSA and stuff like that. But I mean, primarily, you know, uh, my husband and I, we have these two daughters. Now they're 16 and 14 and so they have gone to public high school and public schools, their whole lives in the States. Um, And so the opportunity for them to come here and go to school here has been really interesting. Um, So that actually is probably the biggest reason why we did this to kind of give our kids a bigger experience of the world and um and that's been really great and it certainly um has really worked out.
0: You know, British food gets a bad rap. So so give me one one local <laughs> one local dish that you ride for as a sleeper hit.
1: Well listen, the Indian food in London yeah. is better than Indian food anywhere that I've ever been before and I haven't been to India. So that's the caveat, but um, but the food here is actually really fantastic. It's an international city with a with an international population. So there are lots of ethnic cuisines everywhere that are fantastic. And I remember I think I came to England for the first time, you know a long time ago. Um, and I remember just not you know thinking that the French fries were too thick. <laughs> <And they're, laughs> you know, and I didn't want to put them in mayonnaise. And there were a lot of things about the food that I wasn't crazy about. But the food here is actually really good, and it's really fresh. And, you know, people like to eat healthy here just like they do in a lot of cities. So it's easy to get good, fresh food. So I, I know that they, they get a bad rap, but I can tell you from where I sit, the food here is really good, except for the Mexican food. Do not order any Mexican <laughs> food. Don't get fajitas. Don't get nachos. Nothing with the cheese. It's it's just you got to stay away. French cheeses are fine, British cheeses are good. A good red Leicester is okay, but if you're trying to get some authentic Mexican cheeses, you will you will be very disappointed.
0: Man, getting fajitas in in England is like when my mom went to Big Boy and ordered spaghetti. I mean, it's like, what are you doing? You know? Yeah, <laughs> no. yeah right. I, I I ride for the brown sauce that they they put on the table every meal. I feel like it's it's a little bit better than A1, but that's just me.
1: I haven't really figured out what it is or what it's supposed to go on yet. The brown sauce, it does scare me. Although once I was trying to buy some barbecue sauce and HP barbecue sauce, they also make a brown sauce. And I accidentally bought an entire container of brown sauce. So I don't know what we'll do with it. Maybe see if the dog likes it.
0: Ship it to me. Uh, So when you've got the new new position at at Marist, director for the Center of Sports Communication, I believe.
1: Yeah. So this is I'm making my own personal Brexit um, (laughs) very soon. So my my the longest vacation ever is coming to an end, Sally. And I will I'll go back and um, in January I'll be boots on the ground um, day to day at the school, which I'm really looking forward to. It's, you know, an opportunity that I really couldn't turn down, even though it means, you know, being transcontinental for a bit with the kids and having them come see me and coming back for them, you know, since it's a a university setting, there are lots of different breaks, so I can come back and certainly in the summers as well. So, um, you know, we're a bit in flux as a family for about six months, but I think it'll be fine.
0: You're coming back into an environment where there's so much uh, being debated about sports media. I mean, this week, the the huge debate that's still raging about, uh, you know, uh, salaried pay for, uh, you know, entry level and and younger or, or, you know, more junior positions. There's obviously the ongoing um, issues around uh, gender diversity in the newsroom. What do you what do you feel like your responsibility is going to be as an educator um, for people trying to break into sports media, for uh, helping to navigate and helping your students navigate all these really complicated questions that uh, we seem to be, you know, uh, discussing and debating, not you know, ad nauseum in the sports media world.
1: Right. Well, that's a great question because you know, right now, if you're a parent and your son or daughter wants to become a sports journalist, you have to be thinking. That's crazy. Don't do that um, in a lot of ways. And, and it, you know, it's never been, you know, like a super stable profession to begin with. But right now, I think there are a lot of real questions about how viable it is as a profession right now. And that's not because anything's happened with sports or with journalism necessarily, but it's because the ad model is no longer sustainable when it comes to media companies. And we're a bit in flux from, you know, the Gutenberg Press and the advertisements being printed alongside the written words to now we're in a, an, an entirely new media environment and we haven't quite stabilized yet. Now, just because that situation that we're in doesn't necessarily mean we don't need journalists in the future. We don't need sports writers. We don't need people to come out of schools that are trained and able to hit the ground running and be able to do the job. That's something we're definitely going to need. And honestly, in this media environment, it's going to be easier for a younger, and cheaper person to get a lot of the jobs that are out there than it is for somebody whose experience needs to be compensated. So I think that's kind of where we stand right now. And I think it's a mistake, though, to think that because things are so questionable right now and in some ways pretty bleak um, day-to-day right now, that that's the way it's always going to be. I don't think that's the truth. And so I think my goal as you know, somebody who's going to be heading up the center is to make sure that we're training students not just for the jobs that are available today, but to make sure we're we're positioning them for careers for the jobs that are available tomorrow as well. So I have been thinking a lot about this and about I you know, I, I do I do have some sympathy for editors who are advertising for jobs that are underpaid because they probably don't have the means to offer much more than that. And they're trying the best that they can to get a talented staff and an enthusiastic and a committed staff with the budgets that they have. But that's not always gonna be the case. Um so I do have some sympathy for that, but I do think it's really important that we, we maintain the professionalism of sports writing and of journalism in general. And, and that's kind of, you know, that's where I would like to see it go.
0: You know, my last question on education, because, you know, I, I grew up in a college town. I'm always fascinated by it. Um, I believe you taught a, taught a course or several courses with Richard Deitch, uh, who's been on this show before. What's it like to uh, craft a syllabus with him?
1: Well, so luckily, um, Dykes and I are both um, students of the venerable Sandy Padway, who was a professor at uh, Columbia Graduate School of Journalism for 20-plus years. And we both took his class, his sports journalism class, at different times, I think, which was probably a year before I was. So what we tried to do really um, was together put together a syllabus that, that really kind of reflected the tradition that we'd learned in. And luckily, we both worked as adjuncts under uh sandy for a number of years i think i was seven or eight years and he was i'm going to give him fewer years maybe seven years or five years <laughs> just you know for seniority's sake i'm giving myself more years there um but uh, so we really came into that with a pretty much a very a, a single mind on on what we were looking um to teach and how we wanted that class to evolve and um we did we did get into it a couple of times in the class no 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 life um, but it was always a good discussion and I think it always kind of sparked an interest, you know, in the students to kind of think about things differently and, you know, what's you know, whose side do you take or or what else what other avenues of thought are there that we haven't kind of brought up today? And um and our idea was always kind of to, to spark thinking. But we did, we would <laughs> whenever guests would come in, we would always, you know, count up whether they were ESPN guests or sports illustrated guests or if they referenced SI writers or ESPN writers and had a little running joke on that, but yeah, it was actually it was a really good experience, and and he was fantastic.
0: What was the biggest beef you got into in in, in the classroom?
1: I think uh, the biggest beef that we would get was that he was always saying, you know, if you could make ten cents doing something for a company, that you should go ahead and do it. Whereas I was like, no, 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 you need to you need to think about whether where this fits in, you know, with your career goal, and and whether or not you really want to be working for a company you may not respect very much.
0: I would love to see you two do like the PTI of education issues uh, at some point, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there eventually.
1: <laughs> we, I think we, we could. You know, we don't even have to stage it. Just put it in a room together for 10 right. minutes.
0: Right, right. Okay, so you're here today, not just to talk uh, brown sauce and, uh, and, and sy- syllabi, if that's even the plural of syllabus. Uh, we're going to talk hip hop. We're going to get into <laughs> uh, archaeology. I'm, I'm super excited for this combination. So let's start with music first, if you don't mind. Sure. What was I always go back to? Like, what was the the first exposure that you had that you remember to to hip hop rap music? Do you have like a first album that really kind of made a huge imprint on you and, and sort of served as your gateway drug into this world?
1: Yes, absolutely. So um, I remember when I was so I was I was a, in high school in um, Lincoln, Nebraska, and uh, believe it or not, there were a lot of my friends who were kind of like listening to punk rock at the time, like we'd go to suicidal tendency shows and different things like that and get in the mosh pit. But some people kind of within that group started, started listening to to hip hop. And I think like I was at a party and I heard paid in full played once.
0: Oh yeah. And, uh, <laughs>
1: and I was just like, <laughs> right. And I was just like, wow, this is, this is different. Right. So then I started listening to, um, to different albums and, um, right about that time you know both nation of millions uh, came out and then and then straight out of Compton and i and i and i had both of those and i just remember like particularly what really grabbed me though was nation of millions by public enemy and it was not just the sound of it which was completely different i mean if you listen to it now i think it really holds up even though i think a lot of kind of rap and hip hop from that era sounds very you know Dated like Grandmaster Flash or whatever. It's it's you can really you can type it to the area, to the era that it was performed in. But with Nation of Millions, I really felt like the way that they overlaid the very unusual like sounds. Like like it almost sounds like some of them like you know um, a balloon letting out air. <laughs> you know where they just play that little snippet of that. And then also with the way that you know they they overlay speeches from you know Farrakhan or other nation of Islam um, people and, and the, the pieces of history, the sounds of history, Malcolm X, it really was a different sound. And then also I think it was revolutionary in that the, what they talked about the content of it um, about empowerment, about, you know, uh, mass incarceration. And some of the themes that are, that were, were hit upon are still, they're still very relevant today. It, to me, it really is not just like a time capsule of that era, but to me, it's like, I mean, it's almost a shame to me that hip-hop didn't end up going in that direction a little bit more. It ended up, I think, kind of going more into the straight out of Compton, you know, where it's more acquisitional, it's more about, you know, this kind of gunplay fantasy, and, and of course, you know, more misogyny, even though I, I still love that album and I still listen to it. But it's, you know, that ended up kind of being more about what hip-hop was about, um, popularly anyway. And, um, but yeah, so Nation of Millions to me is just, it's like the seminal album.
0: Yeah, I'm a, I am love Public Enemy. I'm with you. I, I think someone once described their sound to me as like uh, uh, coordinated noise. That artistry that's baked into every song in a really experimental way is what helps really give it a much more distinct and enduring uh, quality that I don't I, I think other groups of that era may struggle to match i i mean I don't want to try to sound overly pretentious as I'm trying to break this down because I'm just a novice uh but I'm with you that, that that there's something to each of those songs that's discoverable on future listens if you just sit there and kind of like think about yeah. it
1: yeah well right like like I got a letter from the government the other day I opened and read it and said they were suckers I mean it's just you know to me like it it really does the theming on it is um it's 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 just as relevant today and i and i do think yeah you're right it's the sound on it it it's not so tied to the era that it sounds old and and i think that's because they really were innovative um with the way that they were playing with pulling out you know those just the little snippets from old records and And, you know, finding a baseline and it was it was just incredibly innovative. But I I think also a lot of it is the power of Chuck D's voice. He had a sound like that, that just, you know, that deep authoritative voice that when he said these things, it didn't sound like he was just complaining. It sounded like like, you know, like decades of grievance, legitimate grievance and were, were kind of buried in those tones. And to me, that was really important because, you know, sure it was a white girl growing up in Nebraska. I went to the most diverse high school <laughs> in Nebraska at the time. And there were, and there were fewer than 10% uh, of the students were people of color. So that gives you some idea of the landscape where I was listening to this music. And, and for me, and, and I'm sure thousands will like me in, You know, in predominantly white areas across the country, it was a real insight, emotional insight into what it was like, the experience of being a black marginalized man in the United States. And that's something that beyond listening to speeches of MLK, you know, beyond what you get in schools about the enslavement of black people, you know, before 1860, beyond all of that, it was a very real connection to the remnants of Jim Crow through the mass incarceration, as it was currently happening in the mid '80s, and to me that was very important. And I and I think it took something like that, um, like that real connection from a person you know who's kind of your own peer in a way, right? Who's who's of your era, and lives in your world, to be able to kind of connect all of you know all of those you know young white kids living across the country with that experience.
0: I interviewed Chuck D once. I was a local newspaper reporter in Peoria, Illinois for a few years, and I also had the chance to interview Flava Flav. Two wildly different experiences, <laughs> if I do say so. <laughs> I'm just curious from your perspective, how do you, how do you feel like the juxtaposition of their those two personas has aged when you look back now and yeah, like you said, do you find that um, do I guess what's your overall take on what Flaves role was in the group and how it both complemented and perhaps uh distracted from what uh you know uh Chuck D was actually trying to communicate?
1: All right. So well I I've I've given this some thought because um because I didn't like Flave of Flave Um I didn't, you know, I didn't like the way that he sounded. I didn't necessarily like what he said. Like 911 was a joke. Was my least favorite album, or my least favorite song on the album. Um, but I think what he does is he plays the role of the fool. And I think what he does is he offers a moment of levity to Chuck D's gravity. And that you need that. And he was also he was kind of a more topical person. He dressed more, you know, in a way that I think was you know was more fashionable at the time. He spoke in a way that was less erudite. He was the fool. And, and you know, the the fool in Shakespearean uh, tradition can say things that people can't say, and then you laugh about it because it's funny, as opposed to being angry about it. And I thought, ultimately, that was the role that he played for Public Enemy. And I think it was important because I think otherwise it would just have been, it would have sounded like preaching or it would have sounded like a downer. But Flava play presence was silly and I think that that then pulled the music up and made it um more accessible in a way
0: yeah I mean certainly made it more popular because we we it's pretty surprising just how much uh their sort of weighty music was big I mean relatively speaking because rap was not the juggernaut it was it is commercially now then uh but you know fight the power was a mega hit and you 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 would hear you would see them on MTV you would hear them on the radio and i definitely think that like your like your point says that, that the accessibility of what i mean flavor was sort of a, a doorway in for people who may not have picked up something as serious as what chuck d would have done by himself but i think once you like to your point once you uh once you got into the music there was a lot more to discover
1: i did see them in concert back in the Late, 80, early, late 80s or early 90s. And I also saw NWA um, while I was living in Nebraska, um, which is like my one claim to fame, having seen NWA straight <laughs> out a coffee store. We had tickets to go see NWA in Kansas City, and we were super excited. There were a group of three of us that were going to go. The night before we were going to leave, one of my friends, we were over at her house, and her mother got into a huge argument with us about why on earth we would go see that group when they were as misogynistic as they are. And we had a real, like, long conversation about this. And I remember justifying it um, to myself by saying that I really liked the music and I wanted to go see them. But one of our friends dropped out and said, you know what, I have to take a stand here. I can't go. So it ended up just being one of my friends and I driving whatever it was, three, four, five hours to Kansas City to go see NWA. And and I, you know, I, I, I have some clear memories of the night. We, You know, we we had a really good time. But um, we may have been two of the very few white people who were there that night. And it was amazing. It was Kid and Play was there. Too Short was there. Was, oh. You know, it was kind of like, I know, I it was really witnessing history. And I just remember it was like so much fun. They were in like a huge arena. And it was um it was just such an, such a, an atmosphere. It was really cool. And then, then we walked outside and there were police everywhere. Um, and they were just arresting people right and left. If I remember correctly, again, I was probably eight, I was 18 at the time. So, um, it was a long time ago, but it was, it was just a really interesting experience and, and it was like, it was a real different kind of experience than I was used to having, <laughs> you know, in Nebraska, um, growing up in Nebraska.
0: You told me your daughter wrote an essay about Nation of Millions, so I'm just curious how you uh, share this music with your family.
1: Well, actually, they've ended. My kids have heard have heard Public Enemy in particular all their lives. I play it. I play it, you know, in the car and stuff like that. I had I had Nation of Millions on the CD along with you know Blues Blues, and uh, you know, like you know, the other kids stuff that we had, because I would play it sometimes, like if I thought they were about to go to sleep, you know, if they were asleep, I'd put it on. If I was going somewhere, I'd put it on. They were, you know, reading, I'd put it on. So they've heard it all their lives. They're super familiar with it. Um, And she just kind of, she wanted to do something. She got an assignment from a teacher here that was, um, you know, take some pop culture, piece of pop culture, whether it's a movie or a TV show or an album and, and just discuss it. Um, it was a pretty simple assignment, and she came to me and said she wanted to do Public Enemy. And so I was like, yeah. <laughs> so so we, put, we put on, you know, we started playing all the tracks, and I still knew all the words, and it was just as fresh to me as it had been when I was a kid. And she got super into it, too.
0: Yeah, I mean... That era of hip hop is very distinct and, and for, for folks like us, I mean, clearly it's imprinted in our in our worldview of, of the entire genre. So what other artists from that era do you still maybe listen to or do you do you still kind of consider to be your your go to's? Well,
1: so I remember listening at that time to well, Salt and Peppa and King T. I don't know if you even remember King T. For some no. reason, like someone had passed, and yeah. I had this big song called "Act the Fool," and I I haven't listened to it for years. But um, but yeah, like so. King T was like somebody that I listened to a lot, and and then you know Salt and Peppa, and um, do you uh, what was her name? Um, Boss, do you remember? She had this song called "Deeper," that was like in in rotation all the time. I'm no. going deep. I don't really. <laughs> love deep. I, I don't. I can't do adaptive, but it's really, I mean, it's just so, so there were like lots of, um, it was whatever could filter into Nebraska, you know, (laughs) like, so Mm I was, I was somewhat limited. I remember somebody had, somebody definitely had a Grandmaster Flash album that they would play, you know, New York um, would be New York, New York, Big City of Dreams would come on at all the parties. And I had that album. Um, But yeah, it was like, it was basically whatever. So I find that like my hip hop knowledge is, really kind of spotty in places just because there were you know, at that time when I was listening to it so much, I was, it was basically cassettes that you'd get past or, you know, CDs that you'd find, you know, in the record store. It was not, it was not the same as it is now where you could just go dial up, you know, the top 20 songs that are in each genre on iTunes, you know what I mean? So it was like, in order to find something, somebody had to give it to you and there just, it was like a, the, the, the pipeline was somewhat limited.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I'm from small town Ohio and I I really think of that era as having like two different dis- types of rap for like a like a young middle school like white kid from the from the sticks. Like there was the stuff you'd see on MTV like Heavy D and, you know, the the, yeah. the sort of very commercialized right, hammer and all that stuff. And then eventually someone would kind of pass a mixtape around and it would have, you know, whether it's Ghetto Boys or NWA or Ice Cube you know, or, or, or Ice Cube or Dre, like when they first dropped. It was really the chronic that I think bridged that divide for people in in my area where that just exploded we were all trying to figure out who the snoop dog guy was what's on their hats that's blurred out you know oh it's a pot pot leaf oh i only thought hippies from the 60s smoked marijuana i mean how young and naive we all were but did 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 you get into any of that like mainstream stuff at all i mean were you especially being in nebraska like did you ever pop by a hammer concert or or pick up like the adams family uh soundtrack or something like that
1: no i think i no so we we didn't like i remember listening to, we had i had raising hell i had the, the the tape the cassette tape so here's the thing is like i had a car i had a Mazda glc port um 1979 so uh the the tape deck didn't work. At some point it crapped out. So I ended up buying an actual boom box that I just put on my passenger seat or, <laughs> you know, wherever. And so I would have the cassettes with me. So I had like, you know, I had Raising Hell. And I remember my friends and I would like listen to Dumb Girl and like, you know, scream all the lyrics really loudly and stuff like that. So we had that. And, um, and yeah, we did listen to I, LL Cool J, I Need Love, you know, like all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, rock with bells like all of the all of those really kind of like anthemy type songs and we would have the I would have the cassettes for each of those and put them in rotation you know along with my james addiction um, cassettes as well you know so it'd be kind of like a little jarring maybe musically if you stepped into my car but um yeah I mean and and by the time like snoop came around I think I was probably in college so that was like a little bit you know to me that's kind of like the next the next wave right that and then you know when when nwa became dr dre or when easy easy went off and did his own thing in terms of like having a solo career and stuff like that i i mean i did listen to ice cube and i had his solo um his first what is it america's most wanted i think was the solo album that he did right after nwa broke up so i had that stuff as well and i listened to all of it i mean he was um you know i felt i, felt, I don't know i felt like ice cube kind of embodied that NWA mentality most in his solo career.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. And and by the way, you you mentioned two of my favorite words, Jane's addiction. So can I, let me just veer off to this for for one second because are you a nothing shocking person or a ritual person?
1: Nothing shocking.
0: Okay, I think that's the correct answer. Like, I the, I think the highs on. Ritual, like I love, th- I, I love three days, and I love like the end of then she did. Like I think they're very powerful, but as an album, nothing shocking is so interesting. And I think the it, it probably works more as a distinct album because of the the. It almost has sort of a everything kind of sounds like it's all part of the same project. Whereas Ritual is just so indul self indulgent by the end <laughs> that it's hard to make sense of it.
1: I just I love the the lyricism of some of the songs like um, Summertime Rolls where it's uh, Mm -hmm. fell into a sea of grass and disappeared among what is it the the shady blades I mean it's just like it's just it's really lyrical and um, kind of hypnotic in the way that it sets a mood so yeah I loved it plus it had my name in the title so you know I had somebody got it for me and I was like this is cool
0: (laughs) yeah absolutely I mean did you ever see that band live no, I never saw them live. I saw the Pixies, but I didn't see Jane's Addiction. I saw um, I saw Porno for Pyros, like Perry's uh, and, and Stephen Perkins' next project, like in and a um, in a bar in Cincinnati, and they played a couple Jane's Addiction songs, which was pretty. I think they played Mountain Song. Um, and something else. And then I later in my life saw Perry Farrell at Lollapalooza, like the new Chicago-based Lollapalooza, on the kids' stage, singing just awful original songs he wrote his children. And he he, he tossed out, I think he tossed out <laughs> I Would For You or something, and I got really excited, but no one else in the crowd was. And I was like, I'm old. I'm just super old. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. But, you know what I know? I mean, speaking of, of wacky bands from that era, I did see Primus. And Primus oh. actually opened up for Public. Believe it or not, in DC when I saw them, this is all going from memory. So if somebody actually Google's this and I'm out of my mind, that's fine. But, um, but that a opened up not only for for public enemy, but also for Fishbone. I went, to, I don't know why it was, I was into a couple shows in DC, but like the, all of those bands, I kind of I don't know. I think of them all together. Maybe it's just because you know they're all from that same era and I listened to them all at the same time. But they were all kind of goofy and I thought experimental, like with sounds and bass lines, frankly.
0: Yeah, Primus was one of those bands, like the early Chili Peppers, that could have opened for any group on earth. Like they just had that weird, malleable sound that kind of makes sense in any context, I guess. Did Did you have any other bands? Oh, sorry. Did you have any other bands from that era that you just, when you look back on, you're like, how do I explain this to my children?
1: (laughs) I don't know. I mean, none that spring to mind. You know, it's it's funny. Like some of them. Like fishbone, I think I think they could get really into fishbone. You know, like, who couldn't get into fishbone, right? I should be probably playing more fishbone for my children. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think the thing is like I think my kids ultimately, they are it's funny because they discover a lot of this music on their own, and I am left kind of as they become cooler than I am, um and more like knowledgeable musically than I am. Uh, I'm just kind of like, oh, that sounds neat. Where did you hear that? You know, like, oh, can you tell me who wrote that song? <laughs> okay, I want to download that song. So uh, they basically are far more um, sophisticated than I am in, just in everything.
0: So let's shift from old school rap to even older school uh, subject matter, archaeology, because I, I love the fact that we're doing both of these worlds. What What draws you in about you know, looking at ruins or visiting these types of sites. And you mentioned off the top um, that one of the big advantages of being in the UK has been travel. And it does sound like you've made some interesting trips since you've gotten over there, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, like after, when I was really little, I wanted to be either a nurse or a ballerina. And um, that was when I was really little. And then I kind of graduated to thinking I wanted to be either a journalist or an archaeologist. And um, my dad is actually an archaeologist and a conservator, and um, and I didn't grow up with him. So I've kind of come to discover, you know, kind of him and what he does as I've gotten older. And um, But I do remember, like, when he and my mom were still together, he would take me on digs around, like, Williamsburg, Virginia, which is where I was born. And um, there are, like, some, some pictures of me as a, you know, as, like, a really little kid, like, nine months... To a year old, like sitting on the dirt in these, you know, as like the, you know, as the sections are being squared off on different, you know, in Yorktown or for different colonial digs. Um, so I've always kind of had it in the back of my head as this thing that I find really interesting. Um, so when we, and and whenever we've traveled, I've always wanted to kind of see, you know, um, the the ruins wherever we are, right? Whatever, whether it's uh, you know, the if you're, you know, if you're on the East coast going to see some of the, you know, the really old buildings in, in the Southern tip of Manhattan, um, or if you're, uh, farther away in Europe, you know, going to see Stonehenge or something like that. So part of what, what I've done, and I found really interesting is that whenever we've traveled, kind of trying to seek out what that is. And, you know, because like just the scale of time is different over here. You know, if you, if you're growing up, like, you know, we lived in New York and, when you grow up in New York, the oldest building that you might see is 300 years old tops. And you might go to um, some areas that that the Native Americans lived in. And you could see, for example, along the banks of the Hudson, there might be some places where their uh, oysters were farmed by Native Americans. And you can see the the remains of that with all of the old oyster shells on the banks of the Hudson. And that might be, you know, a thousand years old. And then you come over here and really time is on a completely different scale. And so, for example, I went to Malta with one of my daughters um, in the spring in order in order for her. She was singing in a choir and they were doing a tour. And so I said, well, um, why not? I'd like to go to Malta too. So um, so I went along kind of for a little bit of a parallel trip. And, you know, it turns out like they have these these Neolithic structures that were built, you know, 4,000 B.C., 3,000 B.C., um, that you can actually go and see. And it's just time on a completely different scale and and imagining, you know, what it might have been like to live, you know, and how you would have lived during those times. I mean, I, I just find it fascinating.
0: Yeah. Is the experience of being at these sites, um, I don't want to go as far as to say meditative, but is it, it, you know, contemplative is probably closer if that's even the right context to to, to use that term. I mean, do, do you find yourself just kind of lost in in heavy contemplation and thought uh, when you're there? Or is it strictly just you're a history buff and you like to, you, you sort of like to just wander in and experience it? Well,
1: I don't know. I feel like, you know... Um, I feel like that being over here has kind of been trying to trying to fit together certain things and certain ideas. I mean, the world has changed a lot in the last, you know, let's say three or four years politically in the U.S. And uh, I think it's raised kind of a different set of questions maybe for a lot of people. And I, I think I, I kind of, you know, like going to Berlin and thinking about some of those things, you know, the the things that you see in Berlin, like the, the Holocaust Memorial, for example, are deeply moving. And I think, you know, I'm, what I'm kind of trying to do is kind of fit together just these different human experiences and kind of just look at that question of, you know, what is it that, that makes us human and, and what have we done and how have we lived? And so I think going to some of these sites, like, you know, these Neolithic sites, so that the, the Hypogeum is a site in Malta, which is which is underground, and, and Hypogeum is in Greek just literally means under the ground. So it's, you know, built, I guess, 3000 BC was when it was in use, and some of the chambers are burial chambers. I think there were like 7,000 bodies that were discovered there. But it, it's underground, and it's built, you know, hewn from the rock underground as though it's a temple that was built above ground. So the the rocks have these have these structures and then the carved structures are like supportive blocks. Like you would see in Stonehenge, you know, where you have the upright blocks and then those, those big stones laying across two upright blocks and um, except that it's all underground and it's all carved from stone. And it, to me, it's just really interesting to think, okay, so, so, you know, 6,000 years ago, people were coming to this place and they were coming underground and they were digging carefully using, you know, what, what antlers, you know, sometimes they use like um, antler horns to chip away at, at different types of stone, whether it's soft or hard, or, you know, the, the, the tools that they had are completely different from modern tools. And, and so people are coming underground in the dark to do this work. And, and what's the meaning of that for them? And, and, and what was the significance of this place? And just like how we always seem to need to have spaces for gatherings, Sacred spaces. I mean, a lot of the sites that I've seen have also, you know, have a sports context, like the Coliseum and, um, you know, the idea of of what sports mean to us as a society and as a culture and as a gathering place and as a place for violence in some spaces. And just, you know, all of those different questions, I think, are are things that I've been chewing on a bit. I don't have any answers, (laughs) you know necessarily have any big takeaways but to me it's been incredibly interesting just to have a space where you know i'm not working 24 hours a day and i can really sit and think about all of these um, just different questions and and different things that i'm able to encounter
0: so when i went to london a couple years ago i went to stonehenge and i'm just curious since it's so nearby where you are right now, like just what's your overall take on that experience? Cause I, I find people are either so underwhelmed or so overwhelmed. It's kind of like hit or miss.
1: Well, Stonehenge is really interesting because it's such an iconic structure that it's kind of like the Grand Canyon. I think if you've never been there before and you arrive for the first time, there's a familiarity with it. You're like, Oh yeah, I've seen it. <laughs> And so I think so that's kind of, I think what people wrestle with when they're underwhelmed, where maybe they thought it was bigger in their own mind or they thought, you know, that it was not as, they thought there was more around it or something. Um, When I think about Stonehenge that makes it interesting, it's the same same time period really as the Hypogeum and and some of these Neolithic structures in Malta as well. So, you know, um, the question, or the the really interesting thing is that there are, it's not the only hinge in England, in the UK. Uh, There are hinges which are really what the hinges are, they're trenches, right? They're trenches that are built around. If you notice, when you go to Stonehenge and you see it, it's not just the stone structure at the top of the mound. It's the, the trench that's built around the stone, the, the, the mound. And so there are all of these different areas in England where there are hinges and where, you know, the rocks have are, are not there anymore. They've been used for, for different, you know, different building sites. You, you know, you might find some... Different areas where they they haven't been excavated yet, but there are some like Abbeberry where the stones are there. The stones in Abbeberry, instead of being in a circle, are are lining kind of this walk um, up a hill, and it's kind of an interesting structure. Also, so it's it's that there's the, that there are all of these different um, again the gathering places, the sacred spaces that we're looking for, and the meaning that's put into all of these. Um, spots like you know what, what what's the p- purpose for them what were they used for why did people find them compelling why here and you know for Stonehenge some people think that that there's actually it's a there's a narrowing of a um, of kind of a gorge and so so the animals for example the speculation is that the animals would have had to pass through this one era, area because of the narrowing and then it would have been easy for humans to hunt them um, because they would have been more densely packed. So, you know, there's a lot of things like that, I think, are really interesting. So it's not just, like, for me, it's like going to a site and seeing something and being like, ah, you know. Um, it's actually the, the history behind it and then and what it might have been used for. You know, what are the bones that are found at the site? Um, you know, what is, what, what is the speculation on what the area might have been useful for? There's evidence of other buildings here. You know, I mean, there's a lot more than just the site of Stonehenge.
0: Do you think we'll ever see the aliens who built it again?
1: You know, okay, so I have a – you bring this up seriously, but I have, a, I have a real gripe. So, so like, I would try to find educational programming in the States for the kids, right, on science. And so one time I decided to watch – What it's the History Channel, I think. It's the History Channel. Or, just, like, one channel with a name that would make you think it's a legit science channel. And and I turned it on, and it was literally – it was all of the stuff about, like, the fascinating ancient site. And then it was all about how aliens laid it there for people to find. And I just was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> but there's like, there's actually a show like that in the States. So you come to UK, you know, I just, just to fill you in, like the rest of the world has legit science programs that doesn't have any, they, where there are no mention of aliens. It, it actually happens. Uh, it can be done. So
0: <laughs> Right. I mean, look, I, first of all, the History Channel sold its soul years ago. Like, when I was in college, I used to watch, they would have real documentaries and shows like In Search of History and then eventually it it became Ancient Aliens and then Ice Road Truckers and that's it. (laughs) And it never went back.
1: (laughs) Well, it is crazy. And, you know, people like make fun of PBS or whatever, but, like, because here the BBC actually does get federal funding, a lot of the programming that they have to do has to be in the public interest. So you don't have shows about aliens. You actually have a lot of shows about, you know, different royal eras. Like, you know, there are plenty of shows about Henry VIII. <laughs> you will never run out of documentaries about Henry VIII to watch if you're living in England. But um, but there are also, there are a lot of other really interesting like science and education programs and, like you know, shows about math, which they actually plural here. So it's math which is very confusing at first, but you get used to it. And they have a lot of these different educational shows. So it's not just this, like, lowest common denominator stuff. The media here is completely different, and that has actually been something that has been really illuminating since we've lived here.
0: Yeah, uh, get ready to get back into this garbage because <laughs> it's only gone downhill <laughs> even since last week.
1: <laughs> I'm very frightened of it. I am wondering if I could get, like, you know, the, BBC, the boring BBC documentaries on Netflix or something like that.
0: So as we as we kind of wrap up, because you've been very generous with your time, give us give us your your uh, what's your top five? Let's just say rap hip hop recommendations for for my audience. Uh, uh, not that my audience isn't fully astute on all things um, hip hop, but wh- where would you where would you say, hey, you, these are your five gotta owns. Uh, you know, from your perspective?
1: Well, I mean, let's just start with, you know, my personal favorite, which is Nation of Millions. Um, I think that is like just in terms of understanding the history. um, That's kind of where you have to start. Um, I would say also um, NWA, Straight Outta Confident. I would say Paul's Boutique. I really like Paul's Boutique. -hmm. Uh, By the Beast Boys. I like. I like. I think you'd have to have a Run DMC in there. So Raising Hell. I'll say Raising Hell. People can argue about that one. Yeah. And then maybe DMX. No, I mean I liked DMX. I think he had a lot of energy, but I'm sure there's something like. You know, maybe maybe Dre's for solo album.
0: Yeah, the like the Chronic.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, I guess you know, for having not thought of it, I think that's a decent list.
0: Yeah. It's a great list. I mean, you left off Salt and Peppa. I'm sure they're not happy.
1: Uh and that's sp- it. I know, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, you know, my ringtone is still Eggman from uh <laughs> from DC Choice yeah you you mentioned
0: you mentioned kid and play earlier will we ever again in our lifetime see a movement of rappers uh embracing full-scale dancing because there's a real soft spot i have for whether it's kid and play doing the the foot stuff in house party or hammer and some of the huge. i remember being in high school and and, or maybe it was college and talking to someone and being like, what's your favorite concert ever? And he said, I'm kind of embarrassed, but nothing has ever beaten hammer on the please hammer. Don't hurt him tour when he had like a hundred background dancers and it was all excess. So do you ever think we'll see dance come back into rap in that way as like a, a kind of a throwback movement? Yeah. And no, I
1: don't. Not as I, currently <laughs> no, but I think part of that is because like, there's been a real move towards like that, um, you know, masculinity. Like it's more about like the being tough, and it's not about dancing. And that's really kind of like I think that tells you a lot about how the genre has changed. But I will say that Christopher Reed, who was um, kid in Kid and Play, uh, actually was a big listener to the radio show that I used to do with Kate Fagan and Sarah Spain. Um, oh yeah, the trifecta. the trifecta. Yeah, and and he was he was fantastic. He would tweet at us. About like stuff we were saying on the show, and I have to say, like, like having seen him, you know, um, on the Straight Outta Compton tour in nineteen eighty nine, I it felt like the whole world had come full circle for me, and I was just, it was a very gratifying moment when I realized that he was a regular listener.
0: Well, do you have any do you, do you have any messages for him? In case he, he tunes into this one, uh, given he's a fan, do you want to you want to see him do enough? I mean, look, LeBron allegedly is going to do a, a reboot of House Party, so I, I have to think that Kid Play need to be, need to have a role in that. Please,
1: yeah, he would be the dad.
0: I would hope so, or like they the- should be hilarious, like or or like <laughs> police or teachers or something. But you'd have to think that at least one of them would be the dad. That's what I would like to see. Yes.
1: Yeah, yes. Yeah absolutely i think that would be great well he's 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 apparently doing pretty well so and he's you know he's he's active on twitter so as far as i know that's pretty cool i mean he you know like it's he's easy to look at now and to kind of make fun of but they were a real thing they had to, you know they were really funny
0: they were great i think their i think their music was fun i think their their first two or three movies were I could watch them today and they also assembled amazing talent. When you think about, you know, Tisha Campbell's in those movies, Martin Lawrence, like it was a it was a real thing uh back yeah. in the back in the day. I wish it's one of those parts of that era that I wish got more uh love now, but you know, hopefully this podcast will will bring it back into the nation's consciousness. <laughs>
1: exactly. Exactly. <laughs> this is a podcast my kids gets- when they want to know what the music was, that I was
0: looking for. <laughs> like most archaeology podcasts, this is we're a real trendsetter on hip hop trends. What can, what can I say?
1: <laughs> exactly. You're yeah. You've been very bold here. You'll either have a, a million listeners or you will have none. So <laughs> that is uh, that's, that's
0: the bet. Well, Jade, I I can't think enough for for. Uh... You know, for giving us this much time, we're excited to see you back in the states. Uh, you start December first. I mean, we're taping this here before Thanksgiving, but um, you know, best of luck to you. And uh, are you bringing any to close out? Are you bringing any English sports fandom home with you? Did you like adopt Crystal Palace or something while you've been over there?
1: <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I, I will say, but I've I've developed a real appreciation for rugby. I mean, I've always mm. I've always enjoyed rugby, but I don't necessarily have a i don't have a side that i'm going for i didn't have to, i didn't buy tickets where i have to like go in under the the entrance that only people from who are fans of that one team that is very interesting isn't it the way they only let you go in one entrance
0: oh here. yeah i i went to you know? i dragged my wife to a tottenham <laughs> game at the old white hart lane and she was floored by how i was i was saying you can't wear you can't wear a rival co- No red. You know, it's got to be navy blue. Or they're not going to let us into the bars. They're not going to let us in. She was. She was also shocked at how the in-game experience was much closer to a tennis match. Like people just sat in their seats and followed the ball, and they cheered during you know certain activities. But she was like, I feel like I'm watching a play, <laughs> which was not what we were expecting.
1: Yeah. No. It's it's a totally different thing, and they and the the the, the, the different chance that different teams friends have like very. Specific, it's like um. I don't know how to describe it. It's like a summer camp kind of thing where, you you know, you have a song, your table has a song, your your cabin has a song, only it's for a team here. It's kind of, I don't know, it is a totally different thing. And, and definitely somebody should write a book on how differently fans fan in different parts of the world because it is not the same.
0: One hundred percent. Well, Jane, thank you again and um you know, safe travels back and, and best of luck at uh you know at at Marist- and we'll tell everyone to follow you at Jane Sports on Twitter. Uh really enjoy your Twitter account. Life's just one big jump shot. One video needs a horn or you might be off. cash money. So try to maintain and refrain from the strength. And don't get lost in the salt. Don't get caught up in it. Life's just one big jump shot. One you need the horn or you might be off. Try to maintain and refrain from the strain and don't get lost in the sauce. Yeah, yeah, we got Big Malik Silly, Alamo with the A from the Nubian clan, you know what I'm saying? Big up to all my people, just keeping it real out there, you know what I'm saying? All the snakes and jakes and fakes step to the rear, all right, and I'm out of here. Yo, what's up? Malik the Freak, saying peace to my peoples on 8th and all my crew up in the Bronx and my boys in Indiana the pound you know who you are represent and i'm out hey and i also like to give a special shout out to the holy foundation this song baby